1: I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Lori Cicero. Lori's an author, freelance writer, and director, and I think I mispronounced her name, Cicero, (laughs) and the co-creator of The Death Deck, which we'll be talking more about. Her upcoming memoir, Clouds Far Behind Me offers readers an intimate look at loss, living life after a death, and ultimately embracing growth. Her list of credits includes writing and directing independent films and behind-the-scenes documentaries and freelancing for Paramount Pictures, Warner Brothers, and Disney. Laurie's personal experience of loss led led to her wholehearted conviction that suffering caused by tragedy can lead to post-traumatic growth an emerging field of psychology, as, as my listeners know since we've talked about it quite often, that explores the positive outcomes that often come after experiencing trauma. Her loss also led her to create The Death Deck, a lively and humorous card game that inspires important conversations on what matters most in our lives and in our deaths. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I'm privileged to have read your book because I know it is not yet published, but yes. gave me gave me such a, uh, a deep look inside your own experience of loss. So let's just start there. If you can share with the, the listeners um, what happened in your family that led to uh, all this work in the death world that you're now doing. Yes. So it all started
2: back when I was really living such a wonderful, wonderful life. I met a wonderful man. We got married. We bought and rebuilt a house. We had two children. We were working together and it all was going really, really smoothly. And uh, we got to a point where um, my husband, Joe, uh, had written a book. He had actually written a uh, Cake Decorating for Dummies, which was a, a passion of his. is uh, What fun. I know. <laughs> it was nice to have a baker and a cook in the house, let me tell you. But uh, he was very excited about this book. He uh, was about a couple of weeks away from going on a tour where he was going to be on some television shows in his hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, and was starting to feel the effects of something going on in his stomach. And you know, it, it seemed pretty logical, you know, hard work getting a book finished, uh, stress and nerves. So we didn't think too much of it. He went to the doctor and basically got a uh, prescription for an acid reducer and told to, you know, maybe hold back on that Friday night martini and uh, calm down a little bit on the cups of coffee. But uh, that seemed to calm it a bit, but it still was sort of lingering. So we left on this tour, and uh, it was a week long. But during that week, it just we could just tell that there was, there was something else going on. And by the end of the week, he was in such excruciating pain that, you know, we got home on a Sunday. We jumped over to the doctor's office on a Monday, went through tests. They found a mass, and by Friday, we had got the call that nobody ever, ever wants to get that, you know, they had found um, pancreatic
1: cancer. So particularly if people don't know a a particularly uh, uh, deadly, I guess I'll say, life limiting form of cancer.
2: It is. But at the time when we heard that, I mean, we really didn't know anything about it. And I remember, you know, hearing the doctor say pancreatic cancer and my mind going, wait, what does the pancreas do? And do we even need that? And just not knowing that, you know, just like with Joe, I mean, it's just it's something that they unfortunately don't find until it's stage four and it appears as it did with him. So we got that diagnosis and, you know, a year long battle with that and, you know, ended up he passed away from the cancer um, and that sort of set me out on my widowhood and which was, you know, as you know, is the grieving process, um, incredibly difficult, but uh, that led me as i started actually writing about a week after he'd gotten the diagnosis so i had compiled a lot of different um writing over the year which led me to the book i think i'm jumping ahead but um, that's fine (laughs) but that's where that's where it all began
1: one thing that really stood out in the book is uh you know you mentioned the life you had and i could imagine that um you know, people that are good at planning, good at setting out goals and reaching them, as it sounds as if you were very much and probably still are, yes. um, to to me, that doesn't prepare you for something over which you have no control. Uh, no, not at all. You know, and and it even seems as if, uh, to, I, I remember moments like this, just just feeling like, uh something is hard to even believe because you're kind of so used to being able to bring things about and it seemed to me that you and he really did start from that point of view we can make this okay we can make this work out uh would that be fair to say yeah, because
2: even after we sort of did a little research and started Googling, which can be a blessing and a curse um, on the internet to try and find out like what what is this cancer? What what are we what are we facing? And realizing you know website after website of how deadly and terminal this cancer is. But you know at that time you know I was in denial of that. It's like no, this is like he's young and he's healthy and this is not you know this is not going to get him and that actually became one of his mantras it's like this is not going to get me and I remember reading on a website you know a little blurb on the very bottom of one that said you know these are just statistics you know this is not you know this is it's just a statistic so uh, the conditions and the outcomes vary and I remember telling him that and then that became his you know his motto at the time it's like you know I am a statistic of one and I am going to beat this. And that was his hope. That's what drove him. And that's what we went with. I mean, I supported him wholeheartedly in that, you know, that, yeah, I mean, we are going to figure this out and we are going to get you any and all treatments so that we can get you better.
1: Well, and I'm, an, I'm imagining that although his psychology around it might have been different without that, he probably still would have done what he did because I know having young kids in particular and facing something so life-limiting, you, you want to do everything you can to try to stay. Uh, and it's true that it, people do sometimes. Treatment does sometimes work, but not because you're a particular type of person, I don't think. Uh, it's, it's a mystery to me. I guess I'll say that.
2: It is a mystery, (laughs) definitely a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. So we we yeah, and we did. I mean, there there is a chance. There there's definitely you know the pancreatic cancer has has. I'd like to say it's come a long way. It definitely has come a ways in, you know, early diagnosis and whatnot. It, it, I would love to see it be even more funded because it's just, it's one of those ones that, you know, they've got to catch it early, but, you know, we went through the chemo, he went through the radiation, you know, it was like, let's get this thing to shrink so that we can do a Whipple surgery, which is the one that they do. Um, And that one is, you know, if they can do that surgery, it's been very successful to, to prolong the lifespan. But unfortunately, Unfortunately, you know, we were able to get that tumor to shrink, but the positioning of it was where they just, it, it was at that point unable to do surgery and remove it.
1: You know, I, I, uh, I have really pretty close experience of this because my mother died of pancreatic cancer. Oh. Uh, and at one point I ran a, a fundraising run mm-hmm. for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network Yep, uh, when she was sick. And I have a very strong visual. Uh, there were a couple thousand people there, I'd say, you know, with the runners, the booths, the helpers, the volunteers, etc. And at one point, they had everyone who was living with or had uh, sur- everyone who had survived pancreatic cancer to come up to the front. And it was six people. Oh. And... Um, what i was thinking about then was it's it's kind of no wonder because usually the strong advocates families can be pretty strong advocates but the strongest advocates on an illness are often the patients yes and and it just made me aware that there were so few people that could do that work um of of getting the you know doing the fundraising and, and beating on the doors and, you know, going to the Senate office and all of that sort of thing. Yep. Um, it's it's a real challenge, isn't it? It is. It really is. So, you, in the meantime, your children were two and five at that time? Yep. I had a, a three-year-old when my wife died, so I know a little bit about Living with a toddler, <laughs> uh. and I had a teenager also. Um, so, what did you? You know, I'm I'm always amazed that people have to catch up that fast because I had a very long time with my wife's illness to kind of figure out how to talk about it, be with it, all of that. How did the two of you um, decide? Uh, What to tell the kids, what not to tell the kids. Um, It it seemed as if you were pretty clear about it uh, as you went through it, um, or at least could get clear fairly quickly. But how do you remember that part of things for you? Yeah, I mean, we didn't hide the
2: fact or we couldn't hide the fact that he was sick and he was going through treatments i mean we let them know age appropriate that you know he was sick and he was seeing the doctors and we were doing everything we could to to make him better i mean we didn't necessarily you know use the word terminal but you know they did know all along that you know that he that he was this was you know a serious illness but you know the doctors were doing everything they could so you know we kept them giving them as much information as we felt that they needed and and with us i mean we held on to that hope until sure. the very, very end. So for us- They kind of like, kept
1: pace with you. Exactly.
2: They did. They did. So, and we were very honest. I mean, if if they had asked, you know, is daddy going to die when, you know, we don't know. We don't, we didn't know. The doctors don't know. We, we don't, we don't know, you know. So we were very honest in that respect of letting them know what was going on.
1: The, the reason it's so important to me to highlight that is that, both as a parent of a child of children who lost a parent, and also as a therapist, um, the people that I end up working with that are that seem most disturbed by a childhood loss seem to be the people where communication was sort of shut off. Um, for instance, my own kids um, are doing well now. can i can I make a direct connection there? No, because you never know yeah. what contributes to what. But <laughs> right. um, they don't seem to have um, some of the issues that that people I work with in my in my therapy office do. And I've I've come to have be a really strong advocate for for talking to kids before, during, and after. Uh, and it seems to have worked out with your kids as well. I don't know how old they are now or what it's like now, but. um. Yes, they're 14 and 16 now. And
2: I think what I really tried to do after Joe had died was to talk about it. And I would try to find those organic moments to talk about him and his life. And you know, as much sometimes they would, they didn't want to see pictures, they didn't want to see a video, and that that was fine. But if there was a moment in the kitchen, you know, I remember a time where my daughter, very young, came in the kitchen and she's, you know, sat down and it's like, you know, I'm I'm crying and I'm very sad, and it's like, well, why? And she's like, the smell, the smell in the kitchen, and I'm like, well, what do you mean? And she's like, the smell of the beans, it reminds me of Daddy, and you know, he used to cook this black bean soup all the time, and I love that she had made the, you know, the tie in with him and that that smell but that was like one those were like those organic moments of sitting down and saying you know yeah you know he got this recipe from his grandmother and his mom used to make it and so trying to find those organic moments of being able to share his life his story his memories and then also on the other side you know also when they would see me cry I mean I I couldn't shut it off i mean it's it just would happen constantly and all the time and you know i would not hide it from them and they would come over and say why are you so sad and i'm you know i'm thinking about daddy and you know we would comfort each other and we would talk about it but i think finding those those moments of you know not avoiding it and just talking about it was you know so helpful to to them and also myself
1: and it's interesting in the book, one of the things that was very hard for you, and we have a break soon, but let's come back to this is when we return. Um, what seemed very hard for you was uh, Joe not really wanting to talk about um, what he would want you to do if he did die. Um, that seemed like a, a very difficult um, a de- very difficult thing for you to navigate, and of course, a lot of the work you're doing now is about, you know, generating conversation. We'll talk about your death, death deck when we come back too. But um, so that's an example where he sort of held that up out of his strong desire to just keep uh, firmly in the I can live through this. Is that how you understand it?
2: Yes, and for him, if we started talking about it, then that would mean that it was inevitable, and that would mean that it would happen. So he chose to not talk about it.
1: Which then leaves you in a position of, of uh, since I can imagine looking from from the outside, there must have been a moment where you thought he may not live through this and then I'm going to have to figure out what to do, correct?
2: Yes. Yeah. And it was a moment that, you know, I, I was in denial, I'll admit it. And, you know, this was not going to happen. It's hopeful he's going to make it. We're going to figure this out. But there was a very real and scary moment when we were in the chemotherapy uh, session where there was a woman who was sitting across from us um, going to cardiac arrest, and still don't know to this day if she died or not. But it was one of those moments of this is very real, and very this real. Yeah. could definitely happen. So it, you know, it, that was
1: about four months before he passed, and I realized, you know, this is something we need to talk about. So let's, let's uh, start there when we get back from our break. And listeners, you can find links to my website, my social media, and my recently published novel, uh, a link to, uh, as to where you can buy it. Um, please be in touch with me. I want to know what you appreciate, what you'd like more of, who you'd like to, to have me interview here. And to find Laurie Lo Cicero. you can find her either on thedeathdeck.com. Website or the uh website, which is l o r i l o c i c e r o.com. Be back soon.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24 7. p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness.
3: Relationship issues? Anxious. Parenting challenges? No more.
0: Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk. of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Lori Lucisero, creator of The Death Deck and author of Clouds Far Behind Me. And before the break, Lori, um, we were talking about uh, that moment after the, um, uh, div- the other patient um, having an emergency event in the chemo room where you realized that there's, there were some things you really wanted to know from Joe that he was kind of refusing to talk about. Um, that's, that's interesting to me in a lot of ways, but one is really when it comes down to it, um, we all should be having those conversations, even if we're 20. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, definitely. Uh, because, you just never know, right? Yes. But, but what happens is typically, uh, we don't have them until something is actually threatening our lives, which is, to me, the very hardest moment to have those conversations. Yep. Uh, because then it connects with, uh, I'm planning for, I'm planning to die of this, which of course isn't it at all. It's just that you you have you're more aware that you're possibly going to die than than those of us blithely walking around yes yes Um, but that just seemed so uh common to have that kind of connection no I can't talk about these things because that'll mean I'm accepting that I'm dying instead of that'll mean that I'm a good planner exactly Uh, so I wondered if you would, and this, this also is how you came eventually to create your death deck, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but would you share that, that piece from the book uh, about how you became aware of the need for these conversations? Certainly. Okay. Um, I had been questioning myself a lot
2: lately, especially regarding the details of the celebration. Thankfully, the most important question, would you want a funeral or a celebration, had already been answered. It was an excruciating question to ask and difficult topic to discuss, death, dying, expressing last wishes, especially in our 40s, but after witnessing the cardiac attack in the chemo ward, I knew we had to. I tried on many occasions after that unpleasant day to have the discussion with Joe, but he always found a way to avoid it. I softly suggested writing some of his thoughts down about the what ifs. I tried videotaping him under the guise of talking about life to maybe document his journey, and while doing so, he could say something to the kids, leave messages, or share experiences. He would have none of it. We were both aware of the odds of pancreatic cancer, but he did not want to talk about it. To him, talking about it would mean it was eminent, that it was a true reality. Talking about death would diminish his hope and even curse his chances of survival. It was frustrating and seemed superstitious, but maybe I would have felt differently if I were the one facing my mortality. I knew how well he could express himself through his well-crafted words on the page. I wanted him to put something down on paper. I wanted him to share in his own words what having children meant to him. Something personal to cherish. Nothing. He was convinced that he would not die, and the thought of prematurely putting pen to paper emotionally rivaled the hideous physical pain he was enduring daily. I learned not to push until I needed to push. It got to the point where I felt I needed in writing something, anything really, at all about what he might want me to do if he died. I vividly remember the day I sat him down on the living room couch, seizing upon a rare but lucid moment between his sugar-loaded opiate lollipops to open the dialogue.
1: You know, when I read that part of the book, I I did feel very grateful for a few things. One was uh, a a lot of time, (laughs) you Uh know, a much longer time so that um, some of those questions got addressed over time. And and also... uh, I just happened to be with somebody who was willing to talk about all of it, and I realized what a uh, what what that saved me from. Yes, <laughs> you know, because it's so hard to be the person to bring that up about the other person. Yes, uh,
2: it was
1: excruciating. Awful. Yeah, and, Awful. and and not to uh, to do it in such a way that you're not implying that you know they'll die. But you're just feeling anxious about what if they did, (laughs) you know, um, I can imagine that that must have been so hard to plan for being a planner as you are to plan for how to actually insist on talking about it. Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing. We... We thought we
2: were prepared. I mean, that's the whole thing that just is crazy because you know when we when I was pregnant with my first child, we we said, "Okay, we need wills and we need to do our advanced health care directive, and we need, you know, to get life insurance. thank goodness. and we did, but the thing is, is that within those documents sometimes is is not the details. So, yes. as prepared as we thought we were, I mean, anything having to do with, you know, that end of life and, you know, the treatment that he, you know, desired and his, you know, his final wishes, we didn't talk about any of that. So, that's what, you know, and maybe we just didn't know i don't know but those were the things that were the hardest and those were the things that you know in the moment were you know so difficult to have to to bring up and i remember you know it's like i i sat down with him i brought my laptop to the couch we sat down and i pretty much just you know opened it up with both of us answering so that he didn't feel on the spot even though we all knew he was on the spot but you know to say what you know what would we both want if this were to happen and I, you know, kind of told him what I would want. And then, you know, he paused a bit and, you know, just sort of started talking about it very briefly but succinctly, as if, you know, he had put some thought into it but didn't tell me about it. And it was, you know, a relatively short conversation. I had a number of questions. You know, he point blank answered them. And then,
1: That was it, and that That was was the only conversation that we had had. You know, uh, another thing that interested me about this is that it took me a very long time. I I did uh, Five Wishes, which is more uh, complete than just an advanced directive because it addresses some of the questions you're talking about. Yes. It took me a long time because of of the many, many scenarios I could envision in my head because of (laughs) of what I do for work, Um, which was ironic because it was more important to me and I really wanted to do it, but it was also complicated. Um, And you're, you're talking, you know, really a a straight on advanced directive deals with one potential situation really, which is a, some kind of catastrophic event where you, you immediately can't take care of yourself um, right it doesn't deal really with cancer or dementia or <laughs> a bunch of other things um, decline old age uh, it's It's really a much more complicated question, isn't it so. <laughs> It is. And
2: what we had was, you know, I would make the decisions for him and he would make the decisions for me. I mean, there was not much more to it in the legal document than that. So as much as I knew my husband, you know, and really could feel, you know, what he wanted, I still second guessed myself on a number of things that happened in the very end. I mean, it's you that's that's what you
1: leave. Yeah, you're left wondering.
2: You're left wondering, yeah. you know, even though you it's, know in your heart it's the right thing, but you still, there's still those moments of like, well, but did I do the right thing? So, you know, to to let somebody know, to let a loved one know your wishes is such a gift to them because then they never have to second guess any of that.
1: But what I appreciate about, appreciate about your, your death deck is um, that when you add humor, first of all, calling it the death deck, <laughs> I, I, you know... <laughs> Attracts some of us. <laughs> it but, does. <laughs> but um, it, it immediately cued me that there was going to be a lighthearted aspect. I don't yeah, know, don't know if, if other people uh, read it that way. You know, well, we did but- get a little pushback on the
2: name. There were a few people that were like, why are you calling it that? And to us, it's like, that's what we're talking about. We're trying to break the taboo of talking about death, of saying the word. And you know right away what you're getting into. And we, you know, we feel like that's what it is. It's the death deck.
1: And, you know, I've I've interviewed other people who've created decks or I interviewed someone from the conversation project, all these different ways to generate conversation about end of life. And I love them all. Yes, Um, I do too. (laughs) One thing I really appreciated about yours was that some of the questions were a little preposterous. And so when I came across ones that were more straight on content driven, uh, I liked that it was mostly multiple choice as well. Um, the, the, The ones that seemed outlandish made the other ones more addressable, it seemed to me. Yes. Uh, so uh, I just want to read one example of, of one of the funny ones. The question is, which of these would you be most mortified to have as the cause of your demise? A, an erroneous swim in piranha-infested waters. B, an electrical out hanging holiday lights. C, death by nachos. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. None of which are likely whatsoever. but but I feel as if it gives people an entry into the into the questions. Do, have you found that that's that's how uh, how it works? that people who use the deck are able to take on the bigger questions because of cards like that? Definitely.
2: Yeah, we are coming at it at a different angle with that sense of humor. We found that a lot of the decks that we love were just those open-ended questions that I think put people on the spot sometimes to come up with these long, elaborate answers um, of seriousness. And so by infusing them with humor, by making them multiple choice so that you don't necessarily have to have your own answer, but you can you explore expand upon the answer that you choose and then also by setting it up as a game where you know it's not just you asking one person you know what you think of this or what would your answers be it's set up to where you know I would guess your answers and you would guess my answers so now we're all talking about it no one's put on the spot and it just opens up just these incredible conversations which hopefully will lead to a call to action to be better
1: prepared Well, and the conversation itself is a preparation. Uh, For instance, when I was reading the card about how long you would want your significant other to wait after your death to date, um, there's a very significant conversation I had with my wife before she died. Um, I've referred to it quite quite a few times on this show because it was so significant where she said, "I, I want you to love again. Uh, yeah, which which at the time I was so opposed to hearing that. Yep. But I there is nothing else she could have said that's been more helpful to me uh, you know in the time since to feel that sense of permission from her. And that was she never wrote that down, you know, or uh, uh, you know, did a tape where she said that to me. But I wasn't going to forget she said it to me. Right. Uh, and so that's significant. Yeah. And we're hoping
2: that, you know, people will play these cards and have those conversations. And, you know, again, you're right. They don't have to be some of the information written down and, you know, in video. But, you know, as people start having more of these conversations and opening up, you know, that's the sort of information that comes out. And it's, you know, it's wonderful to be able to have that conversation. Do you have any favorite cards yourself? I—they're all my favorite. Uh-huh. <laughs> all one hundred and twelve, <laughs> every one of them. Well, maybe one hundred eleven. There's one that's questionable, but um, uh, you know, I think my favorite is the one that talks about signs because I am a huge fan of signs, and I don't know if you've talked about this a lot before, um, but you know, the question is—it's a multiple choice. So, signs from beyond the grave are. A a comforting validation that souls live on. B probably just a coincidence, I think, maybe. <laughs> C, not real. Once you're gone, there's no way to phone home.
3: <laughs>
1: well that I can see why that that was a really important one for you. Having read about the brown widow spiders that came to inhabit your home Ugh. after your <laughs> husband died. Yes. Uh, that was That's...
2: just too cosmic. definitely and then he also he has such a strong presence um and has made himself known through signs which i would have never believed before i would never experienced that before until i did and of course i pushed it away in the beginning it's like that's just a coincidence that can't be but the ways in which you know his name shows up or things that were so personal to us in just the right moment come to me and you know and and for me it's it it is incredibly comforting and it, it helps me know oh you, you're on the right path. You know, he's here with you somehow, some way. So I just I love signs, and I love that you know that I've got that connection still with him
1: through them. And I think that that many people, uh, you're you're uh, notable in being willing to talk about signs. Obviously, some people are willing to talk uh, to people who may not have had that experience. Uh-huh. Uh, but many people aren't because they get such pushback, you know, of such disbelief or uh, minimization, which can be extremely painful. If some way that you're experiencing your continued relationship with the person you've lost, someone else kind of poo-poos. Yep. Uh, <laughs> it's very painful. <laughs> Just that, wow, that's interesting, would be so much better, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would. It would. Yeah. So uh, we, we're about to co- come to our next break. And when we come back, here's what I would like to talk about. You, you talk very deeply about a sense of, of lost identity, which, yes. of course, many people experience, maybe all people, uh, someone before my wife said, "Don't don't bother preparing for a death because you're going to reincarnate afterwards anyway., <laughs> uh, you know? yep. and, and it can feel almost like that, um, just so altered by that experience. Um, but in your case, uh, I imagine more intense in a sense, because you shared so many. Uh, You were married to him, you were his business partner, you parented with him, uh, you lived with him, you know, so many parts of your identity uh, were wrapped up. So I'd like to talk about that a bit when we get back. Okay. Listeners, it's time for our second break. You can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com. You can go to the Good Grief host page to find me, find my book, etc. And to find find Lori LoCicero, you can go to her two websites, the the website for her uh, cards, which is thedeathdeck.com, and her personal website, which is lorielocicero.com, mm-hmm. L-O-R-I-L-O-C-I-C-E-R-O.com. Be back after the break.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: day at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness
3: Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You're listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: uh, the death of her husband and how uh, and what came out of that for her uh, uh, creating a deck of cards to generate conversation about end of life, writing a memoir about their experience. And here you are talking on the phone with me, Laurie. Um, I would really I think that you have a particular a, a particularly intense a uh, story of identity loss. Of course, anytime someone dies, I consider it an identity loss on some level because part of how you're looking at yourself is how you relate to that person in the world. Yep. And, and when you lose that, you lose a piece of how you look at yourself. Um, but I think you had a particularly intense experience of that. Would you read that part of the book? Share that with us? Sure. Okay. I had always
2: seen my life's plan laid out before me as if on a gigantic whiteboard. Ideas, goals, projects, and projections too vast to physically manifest onto an actual board, this vision had always traveled with me in my head. Each role I played in life represented in a different color and font, all clearly seen in my mind's eye. Wife, mother, business partner, etc., all with their corresponding maps of completed, edited, and constantly revised elements scrolling up into memory when completed and unfolding like promising red carpets into the future. Shortly after Joe had died, I experienced a shocking and unforeseen revelation. My whiteboard had been completely erased. Blank. All my hopes, plans, and dreams had become so intrinsically intertwined with Joe's. Now they were gone. I was no longer a wife, no longer a parenting partner, no longer a business partner. My world had been shattered beyond recognition. My life narrative disrupted. I have no idea who I am. My identity is gone.
1: And in a way, I, I feel as if that's, uh, you know, the the thing that was different, Uh, a little bit in my experience is that I had gotten a little bit used to that by the time my wife actually died. I I think I rolled with it. I expected it for one thing, (laughs) Uh (laughs) you know, Uh and, and just kind of had years of preparation for that. Not that that took away grief whatsoever. Of course not. (laughs) Right. Um, But that, Especially because of, as my teacher saying saying, uh, you're going to reincarnate. You're not going to be the same person anymore. I kind of had that in my mind, but that's such a familiar thing from interviewing uh, lots of people who've had loss. Uh, that sense of who am I now? I don't know who I am. I'm, I'm uh, just swimming around. And I would imagine for someone who who was who had a pretty clear sense of identity previous to that. you you appear to me to, to be kind of confident, uh, you know, knowing what's before you and doing it, it must've been so disorienting. It was because I did
2: not see that coming. I mean, and it's obviously looking back now, it's like, well, yeah, of course, that's, that's what's going to happen. You're going to lose that. But at the time, I mean, I think maybe I didn't have enough time to prepare. It was only a couple of months before he passed away that, you know, that, I do Um, further compounded by the fact that um, my mother passed away just a month before Joe did. So I had a lot of things going on (laughs) that compounded that grief. And, you know, I didn't realize that, but I just, yeah, it's just, it's that, that feeling of just. Complete loss. I mean, you, you can't really even describe it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's like a whole other world and you don't know your place in it and you don't know who you are
1: anymore. And it's, it's, it's very discombobulating. And that intersecting with, with helping um, little people become a person, <laughs> you know, yes, become a, become a full human. That actually was, was a little bit, uh, was sometimes at moments difficult for me to keep my ground with uh, because yes. they just keep hurtling forward, don't they? On they do. and But
2: you do need to you know, help them deal with what grief they're dealing with too. And I remember being in a support group and like half of us, we were all widowed, but half of us um, had children and half didn't. And I remember thinking that, you know, I felt so lucky that I had kids, you know, it was kind of that blessing and curse where it's like, I have these kids that make it so much harder in some ways and yet so much easier in some ways because they are that driving force to get you out of bed in the morning. They are the ones that, you know, you need to, or you want to live for. It's like, I, I want to be here. I need to be here. Thank goodness they're here. Or, you know, I don't know where I would have ended up because I wouldn't have had that, you know, that hope or that drive to, to, to help them and to be
1: with them. Maybe the question of, of, um, purpose on earth or why am I even here anymore is also um, not quite as vivid. I mean, you know why you're why you're there if you're getting up and feeding a three and six year old every morning. Uh you know you have you have a very specific purpose yes (laughs) and bathing Uh, and
2: getting to school and taking care of everything and getting them to bed and yes there's lots to do there's lots to keep you busy
1: yes uh and I I really related to that sense of you know um just living through the day until you can um rest but still you have something that pushes you through the day. Yeah, because uh, I
2: I really fell in deeply to my grief. I decided
1: to take a
2: year off guilt-free of not working. I luckily was able to do that because I had in life insurance, which will not last me my life, but it did help me in those first years to be able to, to do that. But, you know, to have just that yeah i mean it's like you just want to survive to 9 p.m it's like that's your first initial goal and
1: sometimes even that's difficult right you know there was a part of your book that that uh when you started coming out of that started feeling your feet under you a little more that um that kind of captured uh where we began today in your biography, you were talking about how much of a believer you are in post-traumatic growth. You and me both. That people do end up growing. Yes, uh, it doesn't take away the traumas, but but it's a it's a possible um, parallel path with them. And uh, both of us have experienced that. But um, it is not a straight uh, straight road, is it? Uh, I was really amu- amused by the sad the sad panda story of oh. the book. <laughs> so when you when you started to be able to see that you would go forward and and with some new learning, but. Um, well, well, you tell the story.
2: <laughs> I will. I will read that for my book. But yeah, just what you're saying. You know, you start to get your footing, and then that rug just gets ripped out from underneath you, and you've got to pick yourself up again. And you know what people talk about a lot of times with the you know the waves of grief, where you know just when it starts to be a calm sea, these huge waves come and just pound you again. But I think in just recognizing that, you know, yeah, you know, you, you will survive this and there will be those calm seas I think is, is incredibly helpful. And, and on post-traumatic growth, I, you know, that's something that came to me after I had experienced all of it. I mean, it was me <laughs> too. Yeah, <laughs> like, why, why <laughs> well, is no one talking this about this? <laughs> like, this is something, I mean, and not that it, you know, I think everyone has the opportunity to experience, but maybe not necessarily, you know, it's not, everyone's journey to you know have a tragedy and then grow from it but you know just knowing and having that hope I think is so
1: important
2: you know to know that yeah you too you you, it can I mean there's there's work to be done
1: possibilities and and not an uncommon
2: yes uh,
1: possibility
2: yes so um the sad panda so um following therapy I head off to my favorite routine stop at the Earth Cafe for a Spanish latte and something sweet. This sinfully delicious treat prepared with fresh, dark-roasted organic coffee and sweetened condensed milk has become my go-to reward after what is always a difficult but appreciated emotional therapeutic release. Its rich flavor reminds me of the café con leche Joe's grandmother Pauline would make and the one he would replicate for us as the late afternoon treat. I paired it up today with a warm cinnamon scone wandering down to the beach to please both my palate and senses while reflecting on my session. With toes in the sand and the warmth of sun on on my face, I settled into my happy, soulful place to enjoy my cafe delights. By habit, I popped the lid off my drink to admire the signature foamy artwork of steamed milk mixed with hot coffee crafted by the barista. It was not what I expected. Instead of the typical artistic rendition of a beautiful swan, intricate palm frond, or cute little duck, today it appeared to be the face of a very sad panda. Seriously? Have I not been through enough? I stared at it, trying to figure out what else this image could possibly be. It stared back at me with its dark brown oval eyes, round face, and adorable little ears, but with a contrasting frown so pronounced, I was tempted to drop in a Xanax. I began conversing with the panda in my coffee, much, I'm sure, to the amusement of everyone within earshot. Why, sad panda? Why the sad face? My overthinking, hyperstimulated mind began to churn with questions and doubt. Was this another sign or a reflection of my reality and how a cloud of depression would always seek me out and cover me? Was this something I was still clinging to that I needed to let go of? Or was it another cosmic balancing act of pulling the rug out from under me as things began taking an upward swing? I wanted to drink my coffee, but couldn't. The face looking back at me was so damn sad. Sympathy rolled in. I wanted to know his story. Why was he so depressed? Empathy surfaced. I could relate to all the feelings his face of grief conveyed. Then anger gave way. I yelled at the froth. What the hell are you trying to tell me? With both my Java and mind playing tricks on me, I wondered if I should head back to the therapist's office or at this point an institution for some additional help. I decided I had to choose. Become a compadre with my caffeinated comrade clinging once again to my comfort zone of grief or push beyond the sad imagery, not letting it take me down and forge through with my pledge to accept what is. I gripped the hop beverage, almost crushing it in my hand. And then, without another glance, I raised the rim of the cup up to my lips and drank him. The bittersweet, rich, bittersweet richness quenching a thirst for power over my ten percent milk fat opponent. Keep battling, <laughs> Lori. You are stronger than the panda.
1: I love that. Uh, I, uh, you know, many conversations like that I've heard but never with a coffee panda so I will <laughs> I will retain that one <laughs> it's been so great to have you with me today thanks for a great conversation oh it's been wonderful Cheryl thank you so much absolutely keep in touch and let me know what you're up to I shall do um, to find Lori Losicero and her death deck and eventually her uh, memoir you can go to thedeathdeck.com or laurielocicero.com. Next week, I'll have Kathleen Flora, author of Walking My Mama Home, a memoir about life as a caregiver. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.